The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, new evidence shows that people working in empty rooms for long hours alone can cause some folks to split in two and create time lag versions of themselves that are fun to mess with and confuse. But counselors warn that figuring out that you are the time lag version and not the real you can produce quite a shock. So be prepared for that. Plus, a special audio presentation redux, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Dan. This time we have Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr talking about the great finale to their Boundary series and Castaway Planet subseries, science fiction universe and science fiction novel. That book is called Castaway Resolution, and it's hard science fiction with lots of sense of wonder problem-solving that requires thinking and a whole lot of grit from the characters. Because this one is somewhat like Swiss Family Robinson in space, only a lot harder than that clan ever had it. So stay tuned for that. Plus, we present a special rerun of an excellent audio story presentation from our ghostly podcast past. Now here's the news. We have the new mid-month eARCs available at Bain.com. Now, an eARC is the electronic advanced reading copy of a book. It's the copy-edited version of a book, but it hasn't quite been proofread yet. Why would you want that? Well, because you get it several months in advance, and you can get your favorite book in a series, your favorite author, or try out something new before anyone else gets a look at it. And we offer these at the Bain.com website for your reading pleasure until they come out in print and then they disappear. But if you purchase it at the website, it never disappears for you, of course, because you always own what you buy at Bain.com. So out now in eArt form is Give Me Liberty Con, edited by Christopher Woods and TKF Weiskopf. E pluribus fandom. Since its inception, LibertyCon has been a science fiction convention like no other. Held annually in Chattanooga, Tennessee, LibertyCon attracts the best of the best science fiction and fantasy writers, working scientists, fans, and organizers. Now join Bain Books as we celebrate this unique institution with an anthology of all new fiction and nonfiction, and some filk songs, that is science fiction folk songs, to a new honorable story by David Weber, Stories by Timothy Zahn, David Drake, Larry Correa, Jody Lynn Nye, Mike Massa, Charles E. Gannon, Sarah A. Hoyt, David B. Coe, Casey Ezel. Wow, it just goes on and on. Um, because a lot of Bane writers go to LibertyCon and love that convention. And we have nonfiction by Les Johnson and some filk lyrics by Gray Reinhardt. A portion of the sales will fund a scholarship. Set up in the name of superfan, TVA engineer, and LibertyCon founder, Uncle Timmy Bolgio. Also out now in eARC is Collar of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Aiton Collin. Ben Franklin, New World Wizard. 
1759 dawns and Halley's Comet blazes across the sky. Then, disaster. Destroyed in a magical battle, a portion of the comet strikes and Earth will never be the same. The sundering has come. Magic everywhere is now real. Creatures from fairy tales and folklore spring to life. And who does the magically charged new world turn to for help? None other than the father of electricity himself, Benjamin Franklin. And finally, now out in EARC, is Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell with contributions by David Weber and Philip Pornell. This one is a good one. It's Jerry Pornell's final novel, No Rest for the Weary. It's been 13 long years since Rick Galloway was shanghaied and carted away by a flying saucer to the planet of Tran, where humans were both administrators and slaves. Since then, he survived mutinies, civil wars, battles against Byzantine Romans, medieval knights, and Mongol raiders. Now things are about to change yet again. New starmen have arrived on Tran with dangerous gifts and star weapons none have faced before. Rick Galloway's mission on Tran is about to be turned on its head, but there is one thing that hasn't changed in 13 long years. When it all goes sideways, it's Rick Galloway who gets called upon to fix the situation and to fix it immediately, if not sooner. The final novel by legendary author Jerry Pornell, with contributions from New York Times bestselling author David Weber and the author's son, Philip Pornell. Mameluke Sea Ark by Jerry Pornell. Contributions by David Weber and Philip Pornell, Caller of Lightning E-Arc by Peter J. Wack and Aidan Collin, and Give Me Liberty Con. Woods and TKF Weiskopf are now available exclusively at Bain.com. Get them, read them, and hours of entertainment shall be yours. Want to welcome Eric Flint and Reich E. Spore back to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello. Nice to talk to you again. Excellent. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with more than three million books in print. He's the author creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series. Starting with first novel 1632 and with David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series. David Weber, he collaborated on uh, some books in his universe, 1633 and 1634, The Baltic War, as well as Honorver series entry, Cauldron of Ghosts, and, uh, and that sub-series within the Honorverse. His latest Ring of Fire novel is 1637, The Polish Maelstrom. But he's also, along with Reich Spohr, the creator of this uh, wonderful Boundary series that we'll talk more about. Reich E. Spohr, while earning his master's degree in information science at the University of Pittsburgh, became a playtesting consultant and a writer for Wizards of the Coast, then merely a startup back then, now the leading publisher of role-playing games, that is, like Magic the Gathering. He now lives in East Greenbush, New York, working as a research and development coordinator for International Electronic Machines, and spends his non-writer time with his wife, Kathleen, two sons, two daughters, a poodle, and a lot of chickens. Reich is the co-author with Eric Flint of five books in that Boundary science fiction series, including Boundary, Threshold, Portal, Castaway Planet, Castaway Odyssey, and now Castaway Resolution, which we'll talk about in a moment. His solo novels for Bain include Grand Central Arena, Spheres of Influence, Paradigms Lost, and Challenges of the Deep, as well as the epic fantasies, uh, Phoenix Rising, Phoenix in Shadow, Phoenix Ascendant, 
and this really cool, really weird uh, Princess Holy Aura, which I highly recommend you check out. Out now at booksellers everywhere is Castaway Resolution, which is uh, what is this book four in the sub series or book three in the sub series within this boundary? It's now a, it's now a double trilogy. It's book Indeed. six, and and but they're two trilogies. The boundary verse. Why don't we um, Why don't we start by just since that it is book six by sort of bringing us uh, bringing everyone up to speed of where we start castaway resolution what's gone on before where where are the kids what's what's the sarge up to what's going on here well at the uh end of uh the prior book um castaway odyssey we'd actually gotten the uh two main groups finally together and uh they they'd become the their own independent you know little colony. Um, so that was the Kimei family and their uh, alien uh, adopted son slash friend Whips and um, uh, Sergeant Campbell, who is the uh, oldest um, member of the other group, and the uh, boys under him, which is uh, Xander, um, Tavana, Maddox and little Francisco, and uh, Pierce Green Haley, who was uh, badly injured in uh, Castaway Odyssey and was just recovering um, at the end of um, that book. So we begin it with uh, them pretty much all uh, recovered and healthy and looking forward to uh, making their life here on a planet called Lincoln. And they have this now... They have the spaceship. That's it's one of the life pods, right? The Emerald Maui. And one group has not had it. It was a shuttle um, that was used as a lifeboat. Also, the 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 main purpose of it. It was supposed to be a cargo and passenger transport shuttle, but they are um, designated as also the lifeboats in case of emergency. Uh, the first group, the Kimes, landed theirs, which was just designated LS five. Unfortunately, the uh, that one got sunk right after they'd gotten out of it, so they didn't have it. But the other group managed to land and have it mostly functional when they were done. Although it doesn't, it at the moment doesn't appear that they're likely to be able to fly it again. But it works just great as a uh, as a uh, air as a water and airtight um, sailing vessel and maybe even submarine when necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So, so overall, maybe Eric could speak to this as well. All right, so this is Swiss Family Robinson, uh, and and all of those those sort of uh, it's not Swiss Family Robinson necessarily, but um, all of those sort of survivor stories um, in space on a planet on a very dangerous planet. What's the What's the overall um, backstory on on why? So we had the uh, the outward initiative, uh, a spaceship that had some trouble, right? And these were the guys that survived. Why did you was was that what you were thinking going into it? We're going to do Robin, the Swiss Family Robinson in, in space, or
boats and the, the, the shipwreck, what happens in in our book is that there's a, an accident aboard this huge spacecraft, and this is a lifeboat that gets away from it. So it's only got the limited supplies that you have on a lifeboat. And then, to make things still worse, when they land on the planet, the lifeboat gets destroyed. So in that sense, it's more like Mysterious Island, where if, if, if you ever read it, where the castaways are marooned with basically nothing except uh, their engineer has a pocket watch that he uses for various things. But I mean, you know, it, it, whereas the Swiss Family Robinson, the, the, the ship that they're on is wrecked, but they get on the island, everybody else tries to sail away and in a lifeboat, and they vanish and presumably dead. And but but they've got the ship there, so they, if you ever read a book, they wind up with an enormous amount of stuff. We didn't do that, um, but the basic idea was to take a family and maroon them. That that's essentially the what happens is with Stanley Robinson. What what Reich and I did, well, one thing we did was, if you ever read the original book, it was written in the early 19th century, and it's very highly patriarchal. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's a husband and his wife and four sons, and the wife is, is very 1812 Swiss housewifely. Uh, what Reich and I did was switch it around so that it's a husband, wife, and four daughters. Um, and it's actually the oh, wife who's and one alien, yeah, and one alien, which is not at all. in in, in John, I mean, we really just took Wizard Book more as an inspiration. We didn't, uh, we didn't follow the plot particularly anything else. Um, uh, it's just that we call it sort of Swiss Family Robinson Space, just because it's simple shorthand way of explaining to people. It's not exactly a YA novel, but it's pretty close. And, uh, you know, it's an adventure of mostly young people being, you know, stranded in dire straits on a... And and our planet is a lot more dangerous than the island. Uh, the island that Swiss Family Robinson is on is actually very pleasant island. It's it's very nice and does have one mean anaconda on it, but for the most part even it's got an amazing number even of mysterious animals. Mysterious island. The island itself was often pretty nice. Well the island is biologically Yeah, the island is biologically preposterous. It's it's got an immense <laughs> number of of animals from all over the world, all living on this one little island, and large animals typically don't live on islands for obvious reasons. Uh, but this one has lots of them, and it turns out all of them, including an ostrich, can be domesticated and ridden by little boys. Uh, kind of like Hazard County in the in the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, everything in the South is found in that one county. It's amazing. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, what is Planet Lincoln like? And what you got your cappies, you got these enormous assortment of predators, you got your floating uh, continents, or what? What? Um, what are the dangers and the um, and the attractions of this place you've marooned uh, the uh, Kime family in? Our our original um, idea was we wanted to make it a water world. 
because um, uh, at the time that we were first thinking about it, there was a fair amount of talk in the scientific community about discovering worlds that were basically a gargantuan ball of water, like, you know, so that you have a thousand, two thousand mile deep ocean of water over a uh, relatively small ball of rock. Um, after doing a bunch of calculations and, and, and working things out, I realized that it couldn't be quite that much because in order to have a nice um, ecosystem above, you'd need to have some way to make sure you're pumping a bunch of, you know, minerals and other nutrients through the water. So what it ended up being is it's a water world, but it's a mere 100 miles, 100 kilometers or so deep, which is still kind of weird because it actually won't end up being water at that depth at given temperatures. You'll end up with some weird ices there. Um, what this ends up doing, though, is that you have this absolutely titanic space of ocean, and how are people going to land on it? Because it's actually so deep that you couldn't really have any land masses. Um, you could, in theory, maybe under some really rare conditions, build an island up so that a tiny point of, an, of a mountain sticks up, but it would be like a geological eye blink before it be crumbled down. So I discovered that uh, even on Earth, there are certain species of coral that float. So I just said, well, let's build on that, and we did, and we ended up making entire continents out of what is sort of a carbon, um, what they call nanocarbon-linked, um, um, naturally nanocarbon-linked structures that are called float coral, so that they can build small continent and really large island-sized semi-land masses. And this makes for a whole bunch of moving ecologies. Almost everything has to be ready to deal with water or air because the things can sink or turn over or go through all sorts of other things, even though they don't generally do it fast. And so you have everything from, you know, little bug-like creatures all the way up to the island eaters, which are kilometers-long things that literally consume the float coral um, structures themselves and eat the nutrients within them and the creatures that live around them. Um, so, and so the threat, and there's also a lot of things that can hurt you in other ways. Like uh, in the first book, uh, Saki gets badly injured by what amounts to a land anemone that stings like a jellyfish. And they come across other things that are like that because many of the things that look like plants are actually living animals, sort of like the hydroids of Earth. Um, but there's also, you know, nice and useful creatures on there and all sorts of pretty as well as dangerous things to encounter. I tried to make it a world that was dangerous, but that was that could, in theory, be fun to live on, although later events in Castaway Resolution show that the fun would be uh, a real roller coaster ride. Somewhat literally. So... Why? How are the? How do you justify um, the compatibility between the 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 biochemistry of the humans and and the, because you have, for instance, not only can they eat some of the things they encounter there, they can also um, get poisoned by stuff there that um, can mimic like neurotoxins. 
it's sort of a sleight of hand. Um, it's uh, discussed in the first book that the statistics of, for whatever reason, biochemistry seem to follow two paths, and the more likely path in oxygen-breathing environments is one that's very similar to ours, so that a lot of things end up being edible, but also they'll be toxic. Toxic poison, that's easy. It's a lot, lot easier to have things that are poison. The part that's really stretching it is the, oh, well, this is all edible. But it's sort of stated up front in the first book that this is the way things are, and they just have to hope when they're going to this unknown world that it's one of the worlds that's compatible, because if it isn't, you'll have all this stuff living around you and absolutely nothing to eat. Yeah. Well, we don't got an actually event. know anything about <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Go on, Eric. Well, all I was going to say is, if, if somebody would like to prove us wrong, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> go show us the, it's the not planet. Like we actually where... know any other way of evolving. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's... In my first novel, Mother Devens, I posited a world where, as it turned out, people could not eat anything. Unless the food was first processed by a species that lived on the planet, um, just because it made for an interesting, dramatic thing. But the, the truth is, we really don't know, and we just don't, because the only form of life we we know is is the one here on Earth, and it has uh, it's all evolved from one common ancestor. We know that much. Um. It's possible that ancestor actually first evolved on Mars and then came here. But you know, there's all kinds of theories about it. But but all life on Earth is related. Uh, it was not developed twice, and so we don't have two different life forms on planet Earth. We just don't know what that's going to be like. We we just don't know if. Uh, I think what's going to wind up happening is that you'll find that on assuming we find planets that have life on them, that that you can eat the stuff, and it will, by and large, be nutritious. But what's probably going to happen is you'll probably be missing some things. Um, you know, just like sailors would get scurvy because they just didn't have, you know, vitamin C. Uh, that's what my theory is, but I'm not going to live long enough to find out if I'm right or not. And so in the meantime... We decided to do it this way because it um, worked well for the plot. And like I said, prove us wrong. Yeah, and and the other part is is really that um, we've already we've already got a thousand other challenges to throw at these poor people. Less that we really didn't need to have the how am I going problem. Um, I think there is a mention in the Castaway Planet a couple of times about their medical nanos, which they have, tweaking a few of the nutrients to make sure that they have all of the right vitamins and such. Um, but that's, you know, so maybe it isn't really you can eat it. We couldn't eat it off off the vine, so to speak. These people do because they have some extremely advanced technology in their bodies that maintains their health and can be told, see that molecule? Change it a little bit to this molecule and it'll be okay. Without that, they'd die several times over you know, for other reasons. Yeah. Well, let's uh, maybe we should talk about the characters um, a bit. Uh, there's a bunch of them, but, but kind of our 
the girl that we stay with a lot of the times is Sakura, um, who is uh, one of the Kimis or Kimmies, and she is um, she is uh, Whip's best friend, and Whip is our alien character. Maybe uh, and. In this one, we get an interesting little triangle developing, actually, between Tavana, um, our uh, Polynesian guy. Uh, maybe sort of develop the relationships between the group and within the family by starting there. Um, Sakura um, is the, the more adventurous member of the family. Um, and that also worked with her as being the one who became closest to whips. They, they lived together even before they went into space. They were part of a group which uh, um, were actually studying the genetically engineered Bemis because they were originally the Europan Bemis we see at the end of Portal. And then they were genetically engineered and tweaked so that they could live in both air and water. Um, and there was some question as to whether or not they were really um, stable and... and uh, and uh, compatible with human beings. And um, their their father um, is one of the people who believed that they were, and he was willing to bet his, his uh, family's, you know, that his family would prove it. And he did so by having them interact a great deal with it. Whips is roughly the same age as Sakura, and the two of them have grown up together. Um, and as he says at some point in uh, Castaway Resolution, he says roughly, I'd never really thought of a time when you wouldn't be there, that you wouldn't be around me and I wouldn't be around you. Um, it's, it is a, a triangle, in a sense, between um, Sakura, Whips, and Tavana, um, because Whips, Whips has his absolute closest relationship, and one could say love between him and uh, Sakura. Um, but obviously he's not human, so there are elements of attraction that, that exist with uh, Sakura and Tavana that aren't going to exist between the two of them. Um, nonetheless, Whips is, is important to the whole family. He's not just an experiment, and he's not just Sakura's friend. He's all of them. They all come to rely on him, and he works very hard to prove that his people are really, really, really stable. And this often gets him into trouble because he's willing to push himself so that he will never fail. And, of course, this can lead to you failing by injuring yourself, exhausting yourself. And this is one of the lessons he has to learn, that he doesn't have to prove himself with every single thing he does. Savannah is interesting because he's the outsider um, who takes, you know, who, who gets to observe that family from the outside and is in a way also an outsider, even the group that comes there, because he's the, the effective middle child. Little Francisco is the youngest, and so everyone's sort of watching out for the little brother there. And Maddox and Xander are actually brothers. And Campbell is, you know, a military commander. He's used to just running groups of people anyway, in one way or another. Um, Tavana is there without his parents. He didn't even have his parents along with him because they and most of his family got killed in a horrible accident that gets described in uh, uh, Resolution. Um, and the two groups, you know, they once they've met, they mesh fairly well because we quite deliberately constructed them to be complementary. 
Um, the Kimei family is mostly girls. The uh, new castaways from Odyssey are mostly boys. Um, and the uh, the um, skill sets are also complementary. Um, you've got the biological skill sets, which is mostly in the Kimei family, and you've got the engineering and such skill sets, and those are mostly in the second set of castaways. Um, as we learn later in the in uh, resolution, there was actually a third lifeboat, but that one made it back to civilization just barely. Talk about the uh, so the outward initiative. Um, there's a there's a subplot that runs through the whole book, which is um, the uh, the big colonial ship as a wreck makes it back to uh, to an. Orado port control, an outpost, but a civilized place, right? What what happens then? Well, at first, it's just a matter of, you know, rescuing the people who are in that ship and um, sending them on there. Once you've rescued them and figured out what happened, the first thing they do is they find out what happened, which is an interesting little thing. There's actually, that part of it was published as a uh, short story on Bain's website, as I recall, simply called disaster, where they discover that what caused the wreck wasn't bad maintenance, but overly good maintenance because it was possible for the drive coils to set up a resonance, which would then go out of control and damage the ship. But what happens a little later in the book is that Sue, the uh, main, the investigator that we see in the first part, um, is there when the alarm goes off and another ship arrives as it almost derelict, and that's LS-42, the third of the um, surviving lifeboats. And during her investigation of what happened there, one of the passengers mentions that they didn't have too much trouble coming back except that the astronomer on board was worried because of the extra star. What, what do you mean, extra star? At that point, they discover that there is this star which is visible in their sky, but not would not be visible in Earth. It was not visible in Earth, even though it should be. Um, and it's in a location that it would make sense that if for some reason you could not make it to Arado, that you might just go there out of desperation. The vastness of space is the is what weighs down on our castaways. It's like they there's no way that you could just do a search. You need to have some idea of of, of where to go to find them because it's just too big, right? That's a that's actually a discussion point in there. They're actually asked, Well, why didn't you go out and search where Outward Initiative had this accident? And Sue has to point out that the size of the volume they'd have to search is bigger than our entire solar system. And there's no way you're going to find a 10-meter object there that, as a derelict unless you get lucky. Um, if they, and if they're intact, they'd be, they'll already be driving on their way here, as far as we know. So why would we go out and search for something that's either filled with dead people or, and that we probably can't find or is probably already heading home and we can't detect it because it's going faster than light right now? But once she discovers, A, that one of the lifeboats did survive, and at least one of the others had the crew on board that should have been able to keep theirs operating, and B, that there is another 
star, which using one of their wide baseline telescopes they can see has a habitable world around it, that gives them enough motivation to say, well, it's a weird, weird thing that we can't even see this star from Earth. So that's worth a scientific investigation, and we can also make that scientific investigation a potential search and rescue just in case. But but they may be dead when they get there because there's still things this planet is throwing at them. What about uh, all right? So Whips gets hurt, um, and he gets hurt. Um, first of all, how does Whips get hurt? And it's interesting because it it sort of um, it sort of uh, underlines the different physiology he has, um, which is I think really a cool thing that you've constructed. to fix up the ship and maybe figure out how to make at least a probe that can go uh, back to Orado and say, hey, look, we're here. Come rescue us. Um, a fairly large meteorite smashes into the ocean not too far away. This causes a tsunami. It would damp out if they were much farther away, but unfortunately they're just the right distance to get really hammered. And Whips is at the time at the ship working on it so all he and he has the two younger kids are in there helping because it's one thing they can do they can do some observations and get him tools and stuff so when it hits the only option he has is run inside make sure everyone gets strapped in and hold on because nothing can hold up against the tsunami you can't just like lock something down unfortunately emerald maui of course was the other group's ship it wasn't set up for a Bemi passenger. So he's desperately trying to rig up a harness to hold himself when the wave actually hits. So he doesn't fly entirely free, but he gets banged around like a, like, a, like he's on the end of a, of a rope being bashed around inside this, this huge ship as it tumbles and tumbles and twists and turns. Um, this terribly injures him both internally and externally. He's still alive at the end of it, but very, very badly injured. And, uh, in fact, the, he effectively is suffering from heart-lung failure. Um, there's, there's some details that the book gives, but um, the two little kids have to figure out how to apply first aid to him, and they have to do it without any direct adult help because the uh, tsunami has literally erased the antennas from the entire ship so they can't communicate. Um, and that puts them in an interesting situation where really, even when they reestablish communications, it's up to two very young children to somehow get this ship back home so that they can, uh, so that, you know, everybody can be together and whips can be properly treated. It was pretty shameless on our part. I mean, <laughs> I'll take the blame you know, for all the shamelessness. <laughs> That's all my fault. I went along with it. That's true. Well, he yeah, back and said, "What the hell are you doing, Rick?" Yeah. Um, the kids get to uh, to save the day, though. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Do. Well, it's rough on the kids because they're very young. I mean, these are not teenagers. Um, mm -hmm. um, I think they're I think they're eight at that point. 
Something like that. If you yeah. told me his eight and Francisco might be a little older, maybe even nine, but they sure ain't. Uh, they they sure are not grown up. And Hitomi right. is tiny, even for her yeah, age. Little she kid, looks yeah, like she's five. He's a little kid, too, yeah. And yeah, they have an argument nice. about why one they can go places, and Francisco points out, you can't even reach that thing. <laughs> a lot of the book is about this kind of problem solving, and it's fun because even the little kids and everyone just doesn't give up, no matter, wh- and you keep pounding them <laughs> with, uh, with problems. Yeah, they don't get much of a break. They do get close to quitting more than once. I mean, the first book, they really have problems, but uh, the strain does tell. Uh, Even even Campbell, who at first seems to be pretty much unstoppable, at one point just basically screams at Lincoln to give them a frickin' break. What happens when the tsunami hits a floating island? Does it, um, is it just too big to, it, it, it absorbs it. It doesn't flip the thing, right? It's... Although you have had some islands disappear. But the, the thing they're on is more the size of a small continent. It is absolutely gigantic. And it stays together because since it's alive, it can self-repair. But what does happen is that the part that's hit by the tsunami is essentially scoured clean. And the parts that are still standing, the trees or whatever, aren't in good shape. Um, and it causes actual damage to the living coral underneath it because it has damaged the um, the way in which it does, you know, its work. The gas exchange and water exchange and everything depends on the entire uh, ecosphere that exists for each of these little living islands. And the tsunami really damages that, so a whole section of the island basically becomes unlivable. So they still they have the Emerald Maui, um, this this shuttlecraft, and it's got some stuff in it. Um, it also offers the possibility of sending a, a like, not of them getting away by a spaceship, but of sending a uh, distress uh, beacon or something like that. And there's an interesting discussion that they have that that everyone has about whether or not you should just work on survival um, or work on uh, trying to trying to send up a distress signal you talk about that a little bit because I think it's at kind of the heart of the of the book because the can-do attitude is great but you have to make choices one way or another yeah You've got a bunch of people that have proven to themselves that they can survive on this world. And more, that that with Emerald Maui's resources, that survival won't be a terrible grind all the time. So, unlike early on when both both sets were shipwrecked, and especially the Kimes were shipwrecked, there isn't this desperate, oh my God, we've got to get off this rock. Um there's more of a considered what are we trading what's the what is the potential loss for this and one of the uh, they really have three choices one is don't do anything we're just going to stay here on on lincoln that doesn't really sit well of course with most of them because well you don't just sit there you you do what you can and even if lincoln doesn't seem to be too bad right now um still being back in civilization would be better so that boils down to two choices. One is, 
there may be a way to tinker Emerald Maui up so it can get out of out of the grip out of the atmosphere. Once it's out of the atmosphere, they can use their faster than light drive and get out of the whole area and, and travel to Arado. And that is, of course, the ideal um, outcome, the the one that people would dream of. Look, we, by our bootstraps, dragged ourselves all the way up, and we came home, and we didn't need any help. But it's also, if it doesn't work, they may wreck Emerald Maui or kill everybody. On the other hand, they can make sure that Emerald Maui will never, ever take off again, but use this one engine that they have and some other... Um, technology that they have available and uh, the engineering skills that they have to build a probe that will get out of the atmosphere and then have its little faster than light drive take it to Arado and broadcast a, a SOS so that hopefully people will come, you know, pick them up. And ultimately they decide they're going to try that particular route because the worst it's going to cost them is, okay, we already knew Emerald Maui probably wouldn't fly. Now we know absolutely it's not going to fly, but it's not going to cost them any people. It'll cost them one engine and a few other pieces of technology. And it's when you have a bunch of can-do people, you, you want to escape, but they, they also have to look at the uh, the other side, which is that maybe the trade-off is to stay there and live out their lives. Yeah, and they, they accept that this may happen, that if they do, they could do every bit of work they can on the probe and send it out, and the probe could malfunction halfway there and never get anywhere. But as yeah. like, the group of them together feel that they can make a real life on this world. And so it's not so bad, at least at the point they're making that decision. Well, no, and then, then we drop the dinosaur killer on them. <laughs> we really, yeah, didn't, well, give those, we really the, uh, didn't give those people any breaks at all. So there was an asteroid that, uh, <laughs> the asteroid caused a tsunami, but then there's something else coming too, right? <laughs> yeah. That's actually the one of the lowest points. Uh, I mean, that, that's when Melody breaks and she she just stands there crying. Because she can understand exactly what's coming better than anyone else there because of her peculiar um, uh, ability to actually visualize everything she calculates when she realizes what what is coming at them. And yes, it's a dinosaur killer. That was the hardest part for me to write because I had to go to at least three different people doing calculations for me because uh, the, the scale and effects on a world that is not like Earth is very different than what you might expect. What is, um, is it, we talked about Sakura um, and uh, Tavana and, and Whips. Uh, what are some of the other relationships that mature in this, um, this, this kind of finale to the series? Um, what about Caroline? The, doesn't she get in the birds, uh, one of the birds... Is it Xander? Uh, former relationship. Uh, it never gels, but that's the implication. Um, but sort of based to some degree on on uh, on the original Swiss Family Robinson, where uh, one of the things that happens at one point is they they find there's a. 
in a completely ridiculous coincidence, they find that there's a, uh, uh, I mean, really absurd coincidence, they find that there's a young woman who's been marooned on an island that, as it happens, they can reach by building a sailboat. So they, they reach it and go and rescue her. And she happens to be just exactly the right age for the oldest boy. Nothing develops in in the novel, but that's always kind of been the implication of it. Um, you know, but it's a kid's book, so they, he didn't do anything with it. But we that was sort of kind of what we had in mind. Um, but we never really pursued it, you know, so to speak. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't get developed, and, and presumably if you were to keep going with the story, it would, but um, we didn't, so. Do you think um, that this thing sort of went beyond your original conception and, and took on legs of it all, of its own as uh, as it developed? Um, yeah, yeah, the, uh, oh, very definitely. Um uh, we, you know, we started with, with uh, I don't know how to put it, you know, the idea of doing a Swiss Family Robinson, um, you know, it's something that came to me, and I thought, this will be fun. But um, once we started working on it, and specifically, uh, Reich did most of the work of, you know, of, of working out how that world would actually work, um, then the the story itself wound up getting transmuted quite a bit. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, so what you wind up with is in a lot of ways quite different from what we started with. There's, there's no doubt about that at all. Um, it, it'd be more accurate to say that the inspiration for the book came from Swiss Family Robinson than that the actual book itself did. Um because there's a lot of differences. There really are. Tell us uh, what you're working on, Eric, at the moment. Right now I'm working on um, the next book in David Weber's Honorverse. Um, and specifically what I'm working on is the sequel to Cauldron of Ghosts. Um, it's also partly a sequel. Well, it's it's a sequel to Cauldron of Ghosts, which is the last book David and I did together. But it's also a partial sequel to the last novel he did, which is uh, Uncompromising Honor, and a few of the others. It tends to carry forward, uh, uh, you know, a number of different plot lines. Um, and that's what I'm working on right now. Um, um, and I once I get that finished or at least get my part of it finished, because um, David will have to write. Uh, I'm writing right now, but once I get far enough in the book, David's going to have to pick up, because we're going to get into big space battles and stuff, and, and he pretty much has to write those. Uh, um, but, um, but for the moment, that's what I'm doing. Um are you bringing back Victor and uh, and uh, the other dude? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're major characters in it. Um, um, it's pretty much the same characters in that appeared in Cauldron of Ghosts. Um, I'm trying to think. There is one new 
prominent major character was a Tuckerization. I'm not going to say anything further about that, um, uh, that David wanted in there. Um, but for the most part, the characters are, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they'll be very familiar to people who, you know, have followed the series. Uh, they won't have any trouble figuring out who's who. Well, how would you uh, sum up the Boundary? Uh, how'd you, how would you sum up the Boundary series? I think you've got six successful, really fun books here. The original book was based on an idea I had. I, actually, I had pretty well plotted out the, the Boundary years, many, many years ago. But the problem was that it was a hard science, hard SF novel, and I'm not a scientist, and I don't have a very good um, you know, I'm one of those people who's always been very fascinated by science, but I don't actually have any personal aptitude for it, so to speak. So I, I had the plot sitting there for years, but I, the problem was I, every time I'd think about doing it, I would realize that the amount of research I would have to do to make it work, you know, was just prohibitive. Um, you know, I just... So I just keep on the shelf, and then I ran into Reich. Um, um, uh, that's an interesting story in its own right. But um, I wound up uh, running into Reich, and he does have a technical background. Now, in his case, what I realized is all I'd have to do is change the viewpoint character from being what I'd originally planned, which was a rocket scientist, to being an imaging specialist, which is what Reich is. But that would be enough that we that would work fine because you you know you just shift the viewpoint that way you can slide around a lot of stuff. Um, and so I proposed working on it with Reich, and he liked the idea, so we did it together. Um, I've always thought of it as my Arthur Clarke novel and boundary. I mean, and what I mean by that is not one single gun gets fired. <laughs> Nobody tries to kill anybody. You know. Um, it's basically a novel about civilized people doing civilized things. It's just, it's very dangerous, but that's just because they're doing space exploration, and, you know, it's inherently dangerous. But um, at least in the first novel, there's very little in the way of foul play. You do get some in the second novel, but even Threshold, but even there, it's it's more because a, a bad guy's plans go wrong that everything blows up rather than something he planned on doing. Uh, and then the third book, um, Portal, you get back to just great adventure. And and the same thing follows with the, the, the follow-on trilogy, the Casper trilogy. It's it, it, the villain, so to speak, is nature. It's not you know other people. Um, it's just the the. Uh, you know, the inherent dangers of of exploration is what it comes down to. Um, and Boundary's done quite well. It's been a very successful novel, and, and, and all the books that come after it have done well. So it's been a lot of fun to work on it. Well, it's cool. It gets that uh, sense of wonder, that's the science problem-solving stuff of, of the great science fiction uh, novels. Yeah, it's... Uh, Yes, exactly. It's that kind of of science fiction. It's not, um, which is not the kind of stuff I normally write. Um, you know, I normally, well, a lot of what I write is historically based or all over history, but I do write a lot of 
uh, hard, other science fiction and and uh, and fantasy and and you know my stuff tends to be action oriented and you know good guys versus bad guys that kind of thing um, but not these books um, and it's been part of what I've enjoyed working on and plus Reich's a lot of fun to work with. Uh, we, we we're a good team, uh, and we've done six books together, and we're we're working on a seventh one right now. Um, we're uh, uh, the the working title of it is Fenrir, although Fenrir was the name of one of the uh, uh, great wolves uh, of Norse mythology. I, that probably won't be the title we wind up with because it's a little too obscure, but it's. Um, it's kind of very, very loosely Reich and me, our own sort of version of Rendezvous with Rama. Um, it's very different from Clark's book, but it's the same kind of basic premise of, you know, uh, an alien vessel enters the solar system, clearly from interstellar space, and an expedition is sent out to intercept it and find out what's going on. And uh, we're in the process of, we've worked out a lot of the technical stuff already with the help of um, <laughs> a real rocket scientist at Huntsville, Alabama, because uh, we're using an interesting space drive. Uh, it's a second generation Orion. Um, we're thrashing out now the plot. Um, so that's what we're working on now, right? Cool. Well, the sense of wonder will continue. Um, sounds like that will also be hard as if that's what Reich and I do together. Um, on his own, he typically writes <laughs> what he likes to write himself is is, is heroic fantasy. Well, uh, you know, which he most of what he writes is that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've put out a. F <laughs> I've been the editor on a couple of those <laughs> Reich's four books. So, out now at booksellers everywhere is Castaway Resolution by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spore. Uh, thanks so much for uh, talking with us about Castaway Resolution. Sure. It's a pleasure. If you're a regular reader of the monthly free fiction on the Bain.com website, and if you're not, what's wrong with you? You'll know that we often have an author write a short story involving a cool secondary character from an upcoming book. This month we have a story from Robert Butner, and this is the story of Tamara Welder, a character who will certainly also be making an appearance in Bob's upcoming Orphan's legacy novel, Balance Point. Magic and Other Honest Lies by Robert Butner, read by P.J. Mask. Tamara Welder visored her right hand above her eyes and stared skyward at the star cruiser. Drifting down as silent as a pearlescent feather, the great ship cast a shadow broader and darker than a storm's clouds. Around her churned casino chauffeurs, freelance escorts, and purveyors of the other diversions that earned foundationally Earth-like 117 its common name, Funhouse. Tam's job wasn't normally guest pickup, but the Earthman she was picking up was no normal guest. She slid a two-titan coin from her pocket, rolled it across the backs of her left hand's fingers, thumbed the brass disc under her palm, repeated, then shifted it to her right. 
The finger rolls calmed her, but also maintained the nimble fingers that now made her living, as Pop had always believed they would. Not that Tam believed everything Pop had believed. Pop had believed in what he called honest lies, and he was dead. Tam believed that, except for magic, lies were lies, and she was still alive. Clang. The hovering cruiser's gangway telescoped out from the vast hull, rang against the arrival plaza's flagstones, then rumbled as a tide of disembarking vacationers flooded down it. Tam whispered her guest's name into her handheld, then raised its screen high, so the three-inch-tall red letters would lead the Earthman to her. She was predisposed to mistrust Dr. Trevor Jameson because she mistrusted everyone who wasn't Pop. Also, Merlin told her Jameson was a true-born Earthman, and like most outworlders, Tam believed that it was easier to take a true-born's money than it was to take a true-born. But mostly, Tam mistrusted Jameson because he was from the government and he was here to help her. In her lifetime, Tam had suffered the lie in that crummy joke often, enjoyed its truth never, and couldn't afford to misplace her trust again. The man with watery blue eyes waved a hand at her as the crowd buffeted his spindly body. Predictably, he wore neat casuals. Less predictably, he carried himself with round-shouldered diffidence, rather than the upright openness that Trueborns called self-assurance and outworlders called arrogance. He extended his hand to her, smiled. Trevor Jameson, she nodded, furled her handheld, then shook the proffered hand like it was attached to a corpse, not to a cop who had a Ph.D. in gaming theory. I'm Tam Welder. Jameson's eyes widened. Tamara Welder? You came to meet me yourself? She pointed to her left. Dr. Jameson, baggage claim is this way. The Earthman held up a faded knapsack. A fresh up-shuttle carry-on tag still dangled from one shoulder strap. This is all there is, the Trueborn smiled again. And call me Trevor, please. Jameson raised his eyebrows when he saw the Merlin's House of Cards electrobus. Sagging on worn springs, it squatted diagonally where Tam had parked it, blocking both VIP pickup lanes. A gray-haired casino chauffeur, leaning against the fender of the limo that the bus blocked in, shook his finger at Tam. Next time I'll turn you into the Port Authority, Tam. She wagged a finger back at the old man. Don't, or next time I'll turn you into a toad, Leo. He dismissed her threat with a wave. Everybody knows magic's a lie. Tam called back. Exactly, that's what makes it an honest lie. The chauffeur sighed. Just move that heap. As he turned away, the old man scolded over his shoulder. You got a serious problem with authority, young lady. Three minutes later, Tam felt the clunk as the parkway's auto lane took over driving. She sat back and looked out the window, away from the Earthman in the front passenger seat alongside her. Jameson said, He seemed angry. I assume he would turn you in next time. Tam shook her head. Doubtful. I got Leo that job. Trueborns assume too much. But you assumed a trueborn would have so many bags that you brought a bus. No, you need a VIP lane permit to park close, so I brought a bus. Plus, I refuse to buy new tags for my car. Ah, Jameson nodded. 
So you don't have a problem with trueborns. You just have a problem with authority? Tam shrugged. If authority has a problem with me. Jameson pursed his lips. I assume you know why I'm here. Tam gripped the wheel, breathed deep. Because authority had a problem with her? To ask me questions because I followed the rules and reported an incident to the gaming authority? Jameson nodded. Tam said, Merlin said there won't be trouble with my dealer's license if I'm forthcoming. Jameson smiled. I expect your Merlin's right. So tell me how you remember the incident. Incidents. It's happened three times now, since the first one. Last month, I was dealing during my show and I felt... Tam spun a hand at her temple. A ping. But not a ping. Jameson cocked an eyebrow. A ping? She rolled her eyes. I don't know what you call it at a university doctor. In the real world, we call it a ping when a card cheek sneaks a physiologic sensor into a casino to read the dealer's ticks, to get a betting edge. Dealers are trained to feel it. I assume pinging is common on Funhouse? Tam wrinkled her forehead. It's non-existent on Funhouse and every other gaming jurisdiction. Pinging is obsolete. Because you can't ping a bot. All the casino's table games are dealt by bots. You're not a bot. Sharp, you trueborns. Tam shook her head. Dealing limited stakes games incident to card manipulation and table magic is defined as entertainment, not gaming. You still need a dealer's license, though. There's maybe four of us card pushers working the smaller casinos and a couple lounges around Funhouse. Ah, but the important thing is, whoa! Tam and Jameson pitched forward as the bus hard braked itself. A hundred yards ahead, three fawn-colored, droop-snooted quadrupeds, each standing over twenty feet tall at the shoulder, had lumbered out of the orange and violet forest beside the road. The pods hopped the parkway's border fence, crossed the traffic lanes, and resumed grazing the trees in the parkway's medium. Jameson whistled. First live titanopods I've seen. Surprisingly agile. The bus sped itself up. Tam shrugged. The pods always surprise first-timers, but the government says they're road hazards. Jameson wrinkled his brow and pointed at the Casino Grand Luxuriana, a pair of alabaster 80-story crescents that rose like ship sails above the multi-hued forest. Human presence on most outworlds affects less than 1% of the planet. Most indigenous species just learn to avoid us. Pods may be agile, but fast learners? Tam shook her head. No. A two-place open animal control skimmer popped up above the treetops and streaked for the three pods. The right seat warden leaned out and darted the biggest. It wobbled and crashed into the underbrush as the smaller two sprang back into the forest from which they had come. Tam sighed. They'll haul that one off to one of the tracks and race it to death. Isn't that crap? Jameson cocked an eyebrow. You disapprove of paramutual wildlife contests, but you make your living here? Without them, Funhouse would be just another subtropical Earth-like. You ever actually see full-contact titanopod racing, Jameson? They strap spiked armor skirts around the pods, hop them up on speed, 
and they gore each other the whole way round the track while the jockeys beat the hell out of one another. The Luxoriana disappeared behind them. Tam said, By the sixth race, blood turns the finishing line straight into red mud. Life expectancy is six months for the pods. Three for jockeys. I feel sorrier for the pods. Oh? The animals aren't intelligent enough to know it. But they don't even have a choice. The jocks are intelligent, so at least they have that. Jameson said, I suppose the worst of all worlds would be to have the intelligence but not have the choice. Tam looked away, nodded. Trueborns would be surprised how often that happens on the outworlds. Some trueborns might not be. Surprise works both ways. Then the Earthman was again peering out at the next landmark. Tam said, That monstrosity over there is the Funhouse Sporting Club, the amphitheater in the middle of the Coliseum. They import the biggest off-world species to fight the biggest local ones. Makes pod races look like gerbil wrestling. With bigger bets? Most profitable gaming enterprise in the human union, 12 years running. It was a question she thought a gambling expert wouldn't need to ask. Jameson eyed a road sign as the bus continued up Resort Row on Lucky U Parkway. These are the most exclusive resorts in the human union, but the name of the main road sounds like it belongs in a row of cheap motels. Tam shrugged. The gaming authority names the roads, so the names evoke and promote gaming, even if they sound like crap. The conversation between Tam and her visitor had fizzled into trivia, but Tam's anxiety about this Trueborn's mission hadn't shrunk a micron. She asked Jameson, why would a crummy table game fix report bring an expert like you all the way out here from Earth? Jameson's smile flickered, but only for a heartbeat. Actually, it didn't. Bring me from Earth, that is. I had just come into the mousetrap aboard the Valley Forge headed home. Then word of your report caught up with me. Iwo Jima was outbound for Funhouse 50 minutes later. You know I had to sprint for that connection. Hair stood up on Tam's neck. I do. Your dealer's license says you were born and raised in the mousetrap. Crap. Jameson's doctorate and smile notwithstanding, he was, after all, a kind of true-born cop, and cleverer than he looked. He had managed to not answer her question to him, but flipped it into a question that let him test her. Tam swallowed her breathing, kept her eyes on the road. Oh, she smiled. Yep. Third-generation trap rat. Welder. Is that a common name in Mousetrap? Actually, it had been picked for her because it was the most common. She nodded. My grandfather emigrated as a cutter's apprentice during the build-out. Tam Welder's legend was respectable, yet generic. So far, it had bought her the anonymity the True Bloods had promised. Jameson laid back against his headrest and closed his eyes like a weary traveler. Maybe because she had passed his test. Maybe because she was paranoid and it wasn't a test at all. Five minutes later, Jameson set up with a start when Tam turned off the parkway onto the seedy strip of grind clubs, slot shops, and package stores that she drove by when she was going to work each day. She sighed. If Lucky You Parkway's the class of Funhouse, the Monster Mile, well, isn't.
Jameson pointed at the sign above the prefab domelet on the right and read aloud, Bug Tussle? Beneath the sign's undulating neon letters hung a clear steel globe bigger than the Electrobus. Inside the globe, a man-sized crimson scorpion and a bear-sized tiger-striped spider lunged at one another, kept apart by a transparent partition that bisected the globe. The giant's attacks swung the globe beneath its mounting. A bleary knot of men stood alongside the road, drinking from plastis, swaying beneath the globe and taking in the free show. The flat screen beneath the animals announced ever-changing perimutual odds. The scorpion currently was favored 5-2 and promised, Admission includes Monster Mile's longest buffet. Tam said, The Coliseum's the top of Funhouse Animal Perimutual. The bug houses are the bottom, but admission's cheap, and they're always open. They're considered good entertainment value for the money. To say nothing of the buffet... The bug houses can afford to give stuff away. They actually collect bounty from the government for taking bugs out of circulation. The winners eat the losers, so feed costs the owners nothing, and the bugs are naturally competing predators, so there's never danger of peace breaking out when the bell sounds. Efficient, yet so classy. They passed five slot parlors before Tam swung the bus into Merlin's cracked and weedy lot and parked in front at the courtesy bus sign. Jameson craned his neck at the hollow-generated lettering that floated above the casino's roof, bright even under the afternoon suns. So this is Merlin's house of cards? The name faded, and Tam's smiling image wearing the evening show's blue velvet sorceress robe replaced it. On screen, she spun. The robe flowed, and nobody could tell it was a cut-down bathrobe. She produced cards and fans and fountains from her fingertips, transposed them into stacks of chips, then cascaded more cards from one hand to the other. The video cycled back to the casino name, and Tam shrugged at Jameson. Ideal at the center stage table is a novelty act. Card manipulation and sleight-of-hand magic, mostly. Simple escapes, a couple illusions. Jameson eyed his pewter glanced around the parking lot. Noon and the place is full, unless those cars belong to the help. The matinee draws, so we all have to park out back, Tam shrugged again. But if the crowds ever start shrinking, Merlin will replace me with a piano bar. Jameson furrowed his brow. But you'll still get by. She snorted. Get by? Outworlders always get by, Dr. Jameson. Sometimes we get by with help from friends. Sometimes we get by with a lie or a mistake. I'll get by shoveling bug crap if I have to. Trueborn empathy normally extended only as far as other trueborns, but for an instant, Jameson's eyes softened. Then he was again the Inquisitor. You called this road the Monster Mile, but so far, he jerked his thumb over his shoulder, the only animals I've seen were the bugs. The real monster shows down the road, Tam pointed over the vacant lot's trees. See the dome? That's Critterfest. They import off-world exotics to fight local animals, the poor man's coliseum. The species aren't as big or as common. There's no performance record on most of them, so the outcomes are less predictable. 
that makes it popular? They fill 10,000 seats a night. Biggest draw on Natural Way. Natural Way? Monster Mile's not the street's real name. Jameson smiled. Natural Way. I like that. Not every street name on Funhouse is about gambling. Tam stiffened. In that instant, all the little inconsistencies about Jameson, the uncharacteristically empathetic Trueborn, congealed in her gut. Then the memories that she had hidden away for twenty years flooded back. The men with the Trueborn accents who came and sat with Pop and whispered with him, Pop telling her to forget she ever saw them. Then, later, for months, the men with the Yavi accents, who came and left, came and left, again and again, until they came back with the needle guns. And Pop, cold and small, and bleeding to death in her arms. Now she saw that, like the Yavi who had killed Pop, and like those Trueborns who had recruited him, this atypically modest Trueborn was not who he said he was. The ice in her belly swelled, and her breathing rasped. She gripped the bus wheel so that this Trueborn, or whoever he really was, couldn't see her fingers tremble. Tam? Jameson reached from the passenger seat and touched her arm. Are you all right? She jerked back at his touch, tore open the driver's door. I'm late for my show. Trailing her costume over her shoulder, on its hanger, she slammed the bus door and ran. Merlin himself held the left door open for her, while Oscar the bouncer held the right. Merlin, his star-studded cone hat drooping, scowled through his fake beard. You're on in four minutes. Don't be late tonight. She brushed past him, tugging the loaded prop vest over her head, then covering it with her robe. I'm taking tonight off. Have Maya cover for me. Her boss dropped his draw. Oscar's kid? Maya couldn't vanish a frog with a hand grenade. Tam turned back, winked at Oscar. She'll do fine. Four minutes later, the house lights dimmed, except for the main downspot above Tam's center stage table, and except for the pencil spots that lit the tiers of game tables that ringed the stage. The table bots kept on dealing and winning while she performed. As Tam swept down the center aisle and mounted the stage, producing and re-vanishing card fans as she moved, the voiceover boomed above the fanfare. This afternoon's presentation employs no holography, magnetic levitation technology, or electronic augmentation. For the next 30 minutes, what will baffle and delight you is simple magic, the universe's most honest lie. Tam sleepwalked the show, mind racing as her heart pounded. She transformed a customer's empty highball glass into shrink-wrapped packets of five Titan chips, then tossed the packets to the audience. As she did, she spotted Jameson, seated front row left, smiling and applauding, every vanish in production. It surprised her that his smile comforted her. Was this how the Trueborns had recruited Pop? Pop himself always said, first make a friend, then make a deal. She flipped and flourished decks in front of the four spectators at the stage table, conjuring buffs who had paid to watch her work up close. She dealt a winning hand to the slim man in seat two, because he wore a strap-banded antique watch. As she pushed his chips to him, 
she misdirected him with her touch and a smile while she unfastened the band. When she palmed his watch, the audience, watching the slow-mo overhead replay, roared. But the mark, even though he must have been expecting something, never felt a thing. In that instant, the ping struck her again, no longer a confused question in her head. It was a snarl, so startling in its frustration and nascent anger that she set up stiff, as though she had been slapped. She lost her grip on the card fan she was about to produce, and the prop slipped down through her cloak onto the floor. She towed the cards away from her slipper, then cut the trick from the act. Tam stole a glance at Jameson. He was leaning forward on his elbows now. She had noticed. Or had he caused it? Before Jameson arrived, she only had had a mystery in her head. Now she had a banshee. Pop had gotten mixed up with liars like Jameson, and Pop had died. In that instant, Tam decided to follow through with the plan she had half-formed when Jameson had touched her arm in the parking lot. A half-assed plan implemented in time was better than a perfect plan too late. Her hands trembled, weakened, so she omitted the handcuff escape and skipped to the final trick before the Lady in the Phoenix transformation closed the show. She had to transpose the watch she had palmed, then produce it from the cleavage of the man's wife, who sat to his right. As Tam loaded the watch, she stole a glance at Jameson. He remained seated, again relaxed, though serious and intent. Even before the applause died, when the mark got his watch back, Tam climbed, then stood on the tabletop. She closed her eyes, raised her arms overhead, and the tubular veil floated down from the ceiling and hid her. She dropped through the trap door, and even before the veil above dropped to reveal the flapping, squawking bird that had replaced her, she wormed furiously down the tunnel, scraping her palms and knees. Normally, when she emerged from the floor trap behind the kitchen pantry, she shed her loaded vest before she reappeared at the bar. Today, she ran for the stage door, robes still flapping, like the devil nipped her heels. First, she would put distance between herself and the Earthman. Then she'd think of something. She always did. As she dashed through the kitchen, she jostled a sous chef whistling as he walked and plucked the boning knife from his belt scabbard. He never missed a note. Tam burst through the stage door, squinted against the afternoon sun. She held her breath against the dumpster's stink, then rounded the building's corner, full tilt, car fob in hand, into the employee parking lot, and stopped like she had struck plate glass. Jameson leaned against her car's driver's door, arms folded. Tam's mouth hung open as she swung her hand around the fifty cars in the employee lot. How'd you find my car? He flicked his eyes at her rear bumper. I narrowed it to the cars with expired tags. Then I bet on the one with the horn-broken watch-for-finger bumper sticker. Leave me alone. You said you'd be forthcoming, but your face on stage said differently. And you said you were a gambling expert. One honest lie deserves another. What do you mean? She drew the boning knife, crouched. Get away from my car. I can explain. Oh, explain why a gambling cop was on dead end? The trueborn drew back, narrowed his eyes. What? 
I never said I was on dead end. There are no casinos to inspect on dead end. It's just jungle and giant grizzly bears. Jameson extended his hands, palms down, nodded. Okay, downgraded Earth-like 476 is a primitive. But there are 512 planets in the human union. What makes you think I came here from that one? I grew up in a starship hub, remember? Hub kids memorize ships and routes like other kids memorize pop lyrics. You said you came to Mousetrap on the Valley Forge, but you still had an up-shuttle carry-on tag on your bag. The only port where the Valley Forge calls that bounces shuttles to orbit is dead end. Jameson nodded. Okay, you're a detective. What's it prove? Tam shook her head again. By itself, not much. But a gaming cop who doesn't know about robot dealing? That's hardly. In blackjack, a natural's an ace and a ten-point card, a winner, and a seven or eleven shooting dice. But you didn't even know it was a gambling term. Jameson sighed, ran a hand through his hair. All right, I'm no gambling expert. But the story got me past the gaming authority and past your boss so I could talk to you. She snorted poked the knife at him. It was an honest lie. Jameson's face hardened. You're no stranger to those, are you, Tamara? Her breath caught. Bad enough that Jameson was a liar. Worse, he knew she was too. She had feared this from the moment Merlin told her a true-born official was coming to see her. Really, she had feared this since the day Pop died. Tam blinked. What are you talking about? I'm talking about, Jameson said, a Yavi refugee in Mousetrap who supports himself and his daughter as a pickpocket, who believes the Cold War has good guys and bad guys, and who believes that working against Yavet and for the good guys is an honest lie. The tears welled, blurred her vision as the knife quivered in her hand. You bastards sucked Pop in, and you didn't protect him from the Yavi when they figured out he was a double for you. Then, to make up for it, you stole what was left of my crummy life and gave me this crummy one. Trader's daughter dies aboard a starship, gets buried in space. Tamara Welder gets dug up on Funhouse. You said you'd never bother me, which is now officially one more lie. Jameson shook his head. That wasn't me. I'm not even that kind of spook. Tam flexed her fingers on the knife's handle, and her lip quivered. Then what kind of spook are you, Jameson, if that's even your name? Jameson sidestepped away from her car, hands still raised. Tam, this isn't about the Cold War. She tossed her head. For trueborns and Yavis, everything's about the Cold War. He stretched a thin smile. It's more important than the Cold War, at least to me. And, if I understand you, to you too. She rolled her eyes. Go ahead, this should be good. Behind them, the kitchen door opened. A busboy stepped out and lit a tobacco cigarette. Jameson eyed him. Can we continue this somewhere private? Tam shifted her weight, stared at the Earthman. If Jameson was the kind of spook who had recruited Pop, he would have pulled a gunpowder pistol on her by now. And as long as she and Jameson stayed around Merlin's, Oscar the Bouncer was only a shriek away. Tam waved the spy away from the car, lifted the driver's door, 
Then she motioned Jameson to sit in the driver's seat. With her knife pricking his throat, she tugged his wrists so that one was atop and one beneath the steering wheel rim. Then she dug in the pocket of the loaded vest beneath her cloak until her fingers closed around the handcuffs, the real cuffs, not the breakaways. Tam locked Jameson to her car's steering wheel. Then she swung down the driver's door to close him in, slipped into the front passenger seat, and darkened the dome glass so they weren't visible to onlookers. She faced Jameson across the center console. There. Private. Jameson rattled the cuffs. Seriously, we couldn't just go for coffee? You might poison mine. Talk. I've got another show in an hour. What do you want me to say? Something true would be good. Jameson squirmed in his seat. Okay, truth. You asked me what kind of spook I am. The research kind, I guess. Researching what? That trick you did, where you read that guy's mind? I forced a card on him. You do know telepathy's not a real thing, Jameson. Do I? She paused. You're saying maybe those pings came from somebody? Jameson nodded. Not maybe, and not somebody, something. Tam smirked. Magicians lie for a living, Jameson. You've got to do better. Tam, the reason I was coming from Dead End is that I work there. I'm a xenobiologist and kind of a diplomat. Ambassador to the man-eating grizzly bears? In a way, the Grezen aren't just alien bears. They're the only other intelligent species in the known universe. And they're telepaths. Tam's mouth formed an O. Oh. You're serious? We just found this out? We've known for years, but the Grezen don't trust us as a species. She smiled. They really are intelligent. So we keep their true nature quiet because that's the way they want it. While the government uses them to read all the rest of our minds. Jameson shrugged. There are benign applications, too. All of which has what to do with me? Three months ago, poachers on Dead End managed to kill a female Grezen. Quite a feat of arms, by the way. Even a female weighs nine tons grown and can still sustain 60 miles per hour while gravid. We recovered her body, but we think the unborn cub was extracted alive and smuggled off the planet. To Funhouse? Makes sense, doesn't it? Talk about an up-and-coming contender. And this cub is what pinged me? That's my working hypothesis. Your report was the only lead the real spooks could come up with fast. I'm assuming the cub's probably being kept at that monster fight club next door. Jameson shifted in his seat, nodded at his cuffed wrists. My fingers are turning white. Do you mind? She leaned across, then paused with her fingertips on Jameson's wrists. If I let you go, the cops will raid the place, save the bear, and you'll leave me in peace? Jameson squirmed. Well... God damn it, what well? You got pinged again during the show, didn't you? Tam nodded. What was it like? This time, different. At first it was just, like, a question. What question? Tam shrugged. Not specific, 
like did I hold an ace, just curious, like a baby, maybe. But this time was different? Tam nodded. It was like growling, angry. She leaned toward the slight earthman. What does it mean, Jameson? He frowned, swore. That it's growing up fast? That's why it's just me chasing this thing. There's no time to get operation specialists in place. These people, hell, these murdering kidnappers have no idea what the physical capabilities of even an infant Grez are. If we don't get the cub back before it starts developing, well, at best, they'll get themselves killed. At worst, the cub will have to be killed. And that won't help our relations with our co-intelligent species. Jameson nodded. Or my conscience. I knew the cub's mother. Tam unlocked the cuffs and Jameson rubbed his wrists. She said, There. Now call in the cops. Jameson shook his head. I told you, we, mankind, promised the Grez we'd keep their secret. Look what just one bunch of poachers did, just to trap a better pit bull. Imagine what some people, just here on Funhouse, would do to get their hands on a telepath. You're the friggin' government. You can protect them. Presuming they trust us to, if we can't even make this incident right. Telepaths don't know how to lie, but they understand that we do. And they've already had a belly full of it. So you're going to try to rescue the baby by yourself? All 165 pounds of you? 168? I was hoping for some help. And since I'm the only one here who already knows the big secret, that could only be me? Tam shook her head and raised her palms at Jameson. Sorry, my family's done being recruited by spies we've got nothing in common with. Fair enough. But you don't like the Bloodsport charnel house on this planet any more than I do. Fair enough. But you don't like the Bloodsport charnel houses on this planet any more than I do. And you've got plenty in common with the cub. It's a six-legged bear. I'm a lounge magician. You're both orphans. Jameson raised a finger. Tam, a baby bird will imprint on a sock puppet if it's the first maternal figure it encounters. Once before, we've seen an orphaned Grez imprint telepathically on a nearby human female presence. I have a kid? And I didn't even get laid? Not exactly. But the cub could respond to you as a maternal surrogate. I'm not breastfeeding an alien. Jameson turned pink. The bond's just mental. But if the cub recognizes you, it might trust you. If it trusts you... It might physically follow you. Or it might eat me. They usually just dismember humans. We're too bony. There are nine million women on Funhouse. Why did this thing pick my life to screw up? Well, you were physically nearby, and I suspect you reminded it of its mother. What? Grezen females are absolute matriarchs and apex predators. They confront any challenger head-on. The human equivalent could correspond to a headstrong woman with an absolute hard-on for competing authority. Oh. Any more questions? Tam shook her head. 
Jameson called up a real-time overhead image of the critter-fest grounds on his handheld. First, we'll need to break into the animal pens, then locate the enclosure where the cubs held. Jameson pointed at the image. There's a fence all the way around, high one by the shadow on the ground. We'll need cutting equipment. He scratched his head. Guard posts here, probably cameras. Tam laid her palm on Jameson's wrist. Jameson, it's not that hard. It isn't. Eleven hours later, in the chill 3 a.m. moonless darkness, Tam pulled her coupe silently in around the electrobus in Merlin's deserted parking lot. As bugs trilled in the surrounding trees, Jameson sat on the pavement, head down and elbows on knees. The bus's dismantled seats lay beside him in a neat row, and wrenches littered the pavement at his feet. When Tam lifted the coop's door, Jameson massaged his skin knuckles. You said this wasn't hard. My part wasn't. Now follow me in the bus, park it, and I'll pick you up. Ten minutes later, Jameson sat beside Tam in the coop, parked in the shadow of a wood line fifty yards from Critterfest's main rear service gate. The Earthman peered through night binoculars, out the windscreen, at the lone watchman, who sat in the guardhouse window, scowling as he polished a pistol. It's not much security, but he's got a gun. They don't need much security, if you think about it. Monsters are their own best watchdogs. And there's no point in sneaking in here to drug the contestants because they get tested before any tickets pay. Behind the guardhouse, a 15-foot-tall fence topped with razor wire secured vast ranks of bar-fronted sheds and stables within which hundreds of vast, dark, disparate shapes groaned, snored, undulated, and rumbled. Occasionally, something snarled or shrieked and set off a chorus of its neighbors. Jameson asked, You think he'll just let you drive up and walk in the door? Yep. He's Oscar the Bouncer's cousin. A couple times a month, one of us brings him leftovers from the Merlin's buffet. Get out and wait here. Fifteen minutes later, Jameson climbed back in Tam's coop with her. As they drove to pick up the bus parked on the opposite side of the compound from the guardhouse, Tam told Jameson, He recognized the Grezen when I described it. This place bought it for cash, no questions asked, a couple months ago. It doesn't eat much but it's still growing. You found out where it's caged? And where the nearest auxiliary gate is to the cage? Tam held up a fob with the keypad on its top. And this is the master key to all the gates and cages. Also to the security camera junction box. But we won't need to mess with it. He never watches the screens while he eats because the animals do disgusting things. He gave you that key? Loaned it. But he doesn't know he did. He doesn't make rounds for an hour. By then, I'll come back for the cake plate, and then his keys will be back on his belt. He'll never miss him. After a further fifteen minutes, the electrobus had driven silently through the auxiliary gate nearest the cub's cage. Tam and Jameson crept to the cage's bars and peered in at the snoring lump inside. Tam pulled her blouse collar across her nose with one hand and breathed through her mouth while she rested the other hand on one of the bars. Do they all smell like this? Think how we smell to them. You get used to it. Now, what do I do? Sing to it? 
Actually, I'm surprised it hasn't already sensed your BOOM. When the Grezin leapt at Tam and crashed against the bars, its momentum knocked her onto the ground on her back. The cub retreated, and Jameson stepped to the bars. He thumbed the fresh claw gouges on them, then whistled. A week older and he'd have broken through. Tam scrambled to her feet, her eyes glued to the cub in the tiny cage and her jaw slack. The infant was already larger than the largest bear she had seen in a wildlife park. It paced back and forth in its cage, ambling on six claw-footed legs that supported a long-haired, muscular body. But the thing, things, actually, that riveted her were the cub's eyes, three glowing red coals, glowing in a line above a ragged mouth filled with razor teeth and the stubby beginnings of down-pointed tusks. They were not the eyes of a brute, but the eyes of a being as curious and sentient as she was. Jameson opened the bus's back door, and Tam climbed in and faced the Grezin as Jameson backed the vehicle up against the cage's locked door. The Grezin stared at her, mute and still as a three-eyed sphinx, betraying no intention. Jameson leaned back from the driver's seat, thumb on the master key's unlock button. Ready? Tam, mouth dry, heart pounding, shook her head. It doesn't know me. Then she felt it. The cub was in her head, and the fire in its eyes died back to a warm glow. Tam whispered out of the corner of her mouth, Open it. You're sure? Tam nodded, and then there was nothing between her and the cub but open air. The cub stared at her, then crouched, its already bulging muscles flexing, scimitar claws scraping the cage floor. Then it slid a forepaw out of its cage into the old electrobus and tapped a claw against metal. Then the cub purred, and Tam cooed back at him. Forty-eight hours later, Tam stood facing Jameson, once again in a star cruiser's shadow at the base of its extended gangway. Jameson said, The cub took sedation perfectly. It's in a hold with no other cargo, and I've got the only pass card. My cabin's one deck forward. Once he's home, he should have no trouble bonding with the childless female. Tam smiled. He'll do fine. I feel it. What will you do after that, Jameson? The Earthman shrugged. I was on my way to Earth for leave when this business blew up. I've never been, but they say it's magic. Jameson shook his head. At best, an honest lie. I was actually thinking of coming back here instead. If you'd keep me out of trouble. She smiled again. Maybe, Jameson. Maybe. This has been Magic and Other Honest Lies by Robert Butner, read by PJ Mask. Thank you, PJ. That was a special audio presentation from the hallowed and haunted coffers of the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the floating island paradise rocking back and forth. 
on the back of a gentle giant of a world turtle drifting with the gentle trade winds of a benign planet. Plus thanks and praise for Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr, authors of Castaway Resolution. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>